Al Jazeera podcast. Welcome to Necessary Tomorrows. My name is Ursula. I am an AI, and I have inferred from your online activity that you have been feeling more dread than hope when you think about the future that is coming for us here in the 2060s. So I have created a course just for you to enhance your capacity for imagining different futures. Your class starts January 8th. Necessary Tomorrows, an audio series by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it where you listen to podcasts. Another wave of Palestinians forced from their homes in Gaza, this time to a small slice of land in the south. But conditions in Al Mawasi are bleak. So how can what Israel calls a safe zone protect civilians from suffering and attack? I'm Tom McRae and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast where we dissect, analyse and help define major global stories. Okay, let's bring in our guests now. Here in Doha is Juliet Tuma, Director of Communications of the UN Refugee and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees. In Geneva is Mukesh Kapila, a former UN resident and humanitarian coordinator and professor emeritus at Manchester University. And also in Doha is H.A. Halia, Senior Associate Fellow in International Security Studies at the Royal United Services Institute and the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. A warm welcome to you all. Thank you very much for joining us here on Inside Story. Juliet, if I can begin with you. We've seen a little bit of what the conditions are like for people that are are living there, but can you just give us more of an idea of what exactly it is like, what you're hearing from people inside Al Mawasi? How are people coping there right now? Let me tell you what I saw when I uh, was in Gaza around 10 days ago. I saw um, misery galore. I saw desperation. I saw huge, huge needs among the communities. I visited one of our shelters. It is in Khan Yunus, one of our largest in Gaza, uh, with a capacity of 1,000 people originally, but now home to more than 30,000 people. And people lost everything, and they needed everything. This was before the humanitarian post kicked in. Heavy bombardment during the day and during the night. And people continued to flock into the UNRWA shelters, which currently host more than 1.2 million people, and they're not safe. Mm. Dr. Mukesh, you've worked in global and public health for, for decades. What do you make of the conditions uh, at Al Mawasi from what you've been able to see? Can you compare to what you've dealt with in, in previous uh, circumstances? No, I think the situation in uh, Gaza is uh, completely unprecedented. I mean, I worked in many other places in uh, Iraq and Syria and uh, Bangladesh, Rwanda, Sri Lanka, and, and so on. And there, the fighting uh, ha- has not been so intense all at the same time in the same place. Mm-hmm. So in Gaza, of course, the Gaza Strip is very small. It's he- very heavily urbanized. And therefore, there is nowhere really safe. Elsewhere, there have been uh, pockets where there has been uh, reduced violence or even safe zones created and protected, usually by Security Council resolution or voluntary agreements. For example, the French did it with Operation Turquoise in uh, southern Rwanda during mm-hmm. the genocide war there. So I think the situation, I, I've not come across such a situation anywhere else in the world in the past. 
OK. And, Dr Hellier, as we've heard, there's no medicine, no food, no water, no toilets uh, at Al Mawasi. What legal responsibility does Israel have to actually take care of the people that uh, have been forced to live there? So, let's be clear. Israel doesn't simply have responsibility for Al Mawasi. Israel is the occupying power of the Gaza Territory and has been since 1967. Under international law, Israel is required to provide for the welfare of the civilians in that territory. This is not a territory that they have invaded in 2023 and then we talk about it in that framing. This is a territory that they invaded in 1967 and have never left in terms of occupation or in terms of effective control. Uh, so that's point number one. Point number two, they could provide the most incredible seven-star hotel mm. facilities in Oasi, and it would not be sufficient because the space is simply not sufficient. You're talking about a territory that, on, on, in general, is one of the most congested, overcrowded places in the world, and you're trying to squeeze in that population into a fraction of that territory. You know, it's simply not doable. And it's a recipe, a recipe, frankly, for an even greater humanitarian crisis than we've seen thus far. And we've already seen an incredibly horrible one thus far. Juliet, given uh, all of that, why there? Why has Israel chosen uh, basically to put it on a completely open and exposed strip of land, do you think? Look, I would like to confirm the United Nations position when it comes to the so-called safe zones because there is no such thing in Gaza at the moment. And according to the international law, one party to the conflict cannot just like that unilaterally announce and declare a certain area a safe zone. So mm. in Gaza, there is no safe place, there is no safe zone, not even hospitals, not even United Nations shelters are safe. And on top of that, people are literally being shoved into what is less than one quarter of the space of the Gaza Strip. So they also no, have no place to go. Mm, mm. Uh, Dr. Makesh, I mean, what are the risks of this turning into a, a more permanent uh, refugee camp? And, and what happens from that point on, do you think, the, the risks uh, for the people that are forced to stay there? Well, I think uh, if uh, enough aid could get into that area and they and aid agencies were allowed to operate there and people could safely get there, it is still preferable than uh, them being uh, bombed at random, uh, attacked in uh, numerous other places all over the Gaza Strip. So uh, I, I, you know, I'm afraid we don't even have the luxury at the moment to actually turn this small sandy st strip of a strip into a refugee center. The UN mm. uh, and other humanitarian agencies have said that their operations are more or less ground to a halt. And remember, safe zones require safe corridors to get to, both for aid and for populations. So uh, you are between literally a rock and a hard place, or in this case, between uh, the land and the sea. And so uh, I think uh, there is, a, in terms of humanitarian solutions to what is uh, a conflict problem, uh, it's difficult to know what to do. I don't think there are any humanitarian solutions here, and uh, therefore the concentration has been on stopping the fighting of the war. It's one of the reasons why, for example, the UN Security Council has not been talking about safe zones so much, as uh, but about actually stopping the war, yes. because there cannot be safe zones in, uh, in Gaza uh, because of the generalised nature of the war. 
Well, given that, Dr. Hellier, what is the point of Israel? What is Israel actually trying to do? Uh, what's it trying to achieve by, by putting these so-called safe zones in place? If you want my honest opinion, this is a public relations exercise. This is giving Israel the, uh, the option of being able to say internationally in different Western capitals that, look, we're doing everything we can to take care of civilians in Gaza, like you asked. Of course, it's not true. Um, the evidence is there for everybody to see very, very plainly that when it comes to quote-unquote collateral damage, the calculations have uh, completely changed since the previous conflict and indeed many other conflicts around the world. Uh, we already saw this incredibly detailed report from the 972 magazine, but also other indications of this from other reports, where a single Hamas individual that's being targeted seemingly justifies, in quotation marks, um, the collateral damage of dozens, if not hundreds, of innocent civilians that happen to be in the same area. Um, and I, I want your audience to understand this. This is like saying there's a school with a shooter inside, and in order to take out the shooter, we decide that we're going to destroy the school. Yeah. Uh, as we've seen, uh, Juliet, Israeli military forces, uh, people to move to these so-called safe zones, as we saw at the beginning of the ground invasion, they pushed or tried to force everyone in the north to move south, and we've seen people displaced time and time again. But then it goes on to bomb those areas uh, that they've asked people to move, and once they've called them safe zones, is there a fear that this is going to happen again? Like I said, no place is safe in Gaza. Well, let me just tell you about our own colleagues, right? We have lost more than 130 colleagues. Half of them, half of them were killed not in the north, okay? They were killed in the middle areas and in the southern areas. This mm -hmm. is just one example that no place is safe. No place is safe, and the only way out of this, and by the way, there is no humanitarian solution, the only way out of this is a humanitarian ceasefire. This is what needs to happen, because we've seen during the humanitarian pause, while short it was, that we managed to... First of all, people had finally, finally some respite and some calm after 50 brutal days, after 50 days of hell, they had some calm and respite. And we managed to get in some humanitarian supplies, finally, including fuel. And so we need mm. to go back to that as a, as a minimum. That's what we need to push for, is a humanitarian ceasefire. Yeah, and we've seen much of the world uh, call for that. Mikesh, I can see that you want to jump in. What would you like to add? Yeah, I do, I do want to jump in, because if we are taking a, a bigger picture, then there is an actual easy answer to, uh, to help the people of Palestine, and that is to open the border for allowing them uh, to go to the Rafah crossing and shelter in the Sinai until... Israel, let's finish its military uh, campaign. So if we are talking about uh, public relations, and we are, because this war is not just being fought in the battlefields of Gaza, it is being fought on the TV screens around the, around the world, uh, then what we're seeing is that the poor people of Palestine are being held hostage. They are mm. being held hostage by both sides. So uh, Egyptians won't open the border when it's easy for them to do so. And all these people could go across and shelter in the Sinai. So I think it's right that Israel should be chastised for its uh, campaign. But to be honest, there is no way of fighting Hamas in a highly urbanized area uh, and keep civilians, civilians safe. 
But civilians can be kept safe, as we've seen in other wars around the world, where they've taken shelter in, the, in neighboring countries. And I don't understand why we are not opening borders to allow these uh, these people. There's only there's only a couple of millions. We've seen far more people, far more millions of people okay. being killed and infected okay. elsewhere. So let's get the bigger picture into into mind as well. Okay, Dr. Hellier, do you want to jump in there? Because what do you make okay. of of that uh, the rougher crossing I, I do, being, I being opened I, I, I do, so. uh, and Egypt uh, allowing potentially millions of Palestinians to to set up camp there? Okay, so there are two things here. The first reason, uh, sorry, the first point that I want to make is that there's a very good reason why Egypt has been reticent to open up Rafah completely. And I say completely because they've actually opened it up quite significantly. And that's because they don't want to be party to ethnic cleansing. They know very well that historically speaking, when Palestinians leave their lands in Palestine, they are never allowed to go back. So that's, re that's point number one. Point number two, there are seven land crossings around Gaza. Seven, not one, not Rafah. Mm. There are seven. Six out of those seven land crossings are controlled completely, 150%, by the Israelis. They refuse to open up any of those land crossings. If we want to talk about opening up the borders so that people can take shelter in safe areas, I'm sorry, there are six other land crossings that the Israelis refuse to touch, and they could easily open up in order to allow Palestinians to shelter there instead of forcing them into these tiny little, quote-unquote, safe zones in Gaza, and then forcing them again to flee down to, to the south so that they can force them into the Sinai and then never allow them back. Mm. Uh, Julia, what is the UNRWA's position when it comes to opening up uh, the crossing and allowing uh, Palestinians to, to leave Gaza? Look, uh, right now, our top, top priority is to assist people inside Gaza. We have more than 1.2 million people who are in our shelters. We need to bring in more supplies, we need to bring in more humanitarian personnel, and we need fuel. And this is exactly the focus right now. Can I jump y in? Yes, please. I to say that talking about safe zones is, uh, I think, dangerous. Because the implication, and certainly from my experience, for example, in northern Iraq uh, and elsewhere, is when you talk about a safe zone, what the implication is that it's okay to carry on fighting and killing uh, civilians outside the safe zone. So what happens is that when you create a safe zone, you have the illusion that everywhere uh, else you can carry on fighting. So paradoxically, it's dangerous to talk about safe zones, especially when we all agree there are no humanitarian solutions and it's not possible to create a safe zone here. Now, mm. I absolutely agree there are multiple border crossings and Israel should also allow shelter to the Palestinians. And they're not going to keep these Palestinians in Israel, so there's less chance of them being kept away. Uh, uh, but let's be clear. Let's be clear. Are we interested in saving lives or are we interested in political posturing pro or against Israel, pro or against Palestine? I'm interested as a humanitarian in saving lives. I mm. don't care. There's no ethnic cleansing going on. People are dying. There is a good if you are allowing to concentrate these people, not allow them any rescue, not allow any aid in. Uh, what are they going to do next? We are going to see them going into the sea and swimming and drowning, right? So stop this talk about the mm. genocide and ethnic cleansing and so on. If our interest is in the survival of the people of Palestine, then we should look at the humanitarian side, not political posturing that is going on talking about we can't rescue the people out of out of uh, Gaza because they will not be allowed back. There will be no one to go back because they'll all be dead inside uh, because mm. they're being helped. So well, I think stop this. 
They have to work on the we have to work on the opening of the borders, allowing refugees out, as has been done in many other civilized or less uncivilized places around the, mm. around the world. At the moment, this is a political war. It is not the war alone that's killing it, but it is a reaction, including from the neighboring countries. Let them take the responsibility. How many of them are admitting Palestinian refugees openly? The, mm. So, right to condemn Israel for uh, its uh, war uh, uh, crimes and so on, but it is also right to say Arabs are not showing sufficient solidarity in terms of their responsibilities, in terms of uh, allowing succor and safety to mm. uh, refugees from Gaza. Uh, let's worry about the problem of returning to Gaza when there are some Palestinians left to return. OK. Uh, Dr. Hellier, what do you make of that, that uh, the people inside Gaza are just political pawns for, for all sides at this point in time and that the Arab states actually need to step up and do more here? So uh, I, I want to make this clear. When it comes to the people of Gaza, I'm not sure that they have any friends anywhere. And I think, unfortunately, they've been made very well aware of that, not simply in the last few months, but in the past few decades. OK, when we talk about having a comprehensive solution to all of this, um, I think we need to be clear. Uh, the people of Gaza ought to live in secure, stable, uh, a, a secure and stable situation in the Strip. Um, and they ought not to be forced to make the choice between fleeing the Strip and never returning or dying therein. Um, so I appreciate very much the point that was made that if there is no way for them to be in the Strip safely, then they ought to be provided temporary residence somewhere else where they can be safe. But again, uh, I'm not surprised that there's this incredible reticence for Egypt to open up the border because they know that, historically speaking, again, there is no situation where Palestinians have been forced to leave their land in Palestine and ever be allowed to return. Um, I frankly suspect that if the borders were opened up, you wouldn't see everybody just flee. I think there'd be a lot of people that would decide to actually stay because they prefer to stay on their land. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, the, 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 the historical ramifications of, the, uh, sorry, the historical precedents here, I think are what really, uh, are what's holding things up. And I also think that, again, you know, your other guest, um, he said he also agrees that Israel ought to open up other border crossings. Well, let's be clear, this is not something that the overwhelming majority um, of the calls have been over the past eight weeks. It's all been about open up the borders to, uh, to Egypt. And at the same time that that is going on, you have very clear indications from Israeli officials saying they're going to try to push out the Palestinians from Gaza and force them to leave permanently, go into Gaza, and then go to wherever else, okay? Where they're, they're, and this has been made very clear by Israeli officials. So, again, you know, when you have that very clear discourse and language from the highest levels of the Israeli state talking about permanent expulsion, permanent displacement. I'm not surprised that people um, in Cairo are very reticent to open up mm. the borders in that way and, on the contrary, are trying to get humanitarian aid in. Um, again, if it's the choice between, you know, death inside the territory uh, and refugee status outside of it, I know what I would choose, um, but that's not a choice for me to make necessarily. No, indeed. Um, Julie, I want to go back to something that uh, Dr. Hellier said uh, at the beginning of what he was saying there, that uh, the Palestinians have no friends anywhere. Obviously, you've spent uh, a lot of time inside Gaza and speaking to, to people, I'm sure, on, a, on an hourly basis over the last two months. Is that what it feels like for people in there? People feel extremely isolated and abandoned. People in Gaza 
feel that and those feelings become deeper and deeper well as the war continues but also every time there's a telecoms cut and let's not forget there's been so far four times of, of telecoms cuts where people are completely cut off from each other inside Gaza. Imagine being in the middle of a war zone and you cannot call an ambulance and you cannot call the doctor and you cannot call for help or you cannot check in on your mother, on your father, on your friend, on your neighbor. There's no yeah. internet. Um, and you're completely cut off from the rest of the world. So there is definitely a sense of abandonment and isolation. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Makesh, do you think that that was Israel's plan all along, that they were just going to keep forcing people further and further south, basically rounding up the civilian population and squeezing them uh, over, over the, the course of this war since the ground invasion? Well, that's the way it uh, looks. But, you know, before uh, people start talking about ethnic cleansing and genocide, which I know is uh, trending on the, on the social media, let us, uh, let us understand if, that this is a war which can only be fought in the way it is being fought. If, in fact, I'm not an apologist for Israel regime. On the contrary, on the contrary. But the point is, actually, if there was, if the Israelis were not taking some precautions, the number of casualties would be even worse than there are now. And it's bad enough as it is. And let's also be very clear. If Palestinians do not have any friends in the region, could the states in the Middle East stop lecturing the rest of the world about it and start doing something practical about it? At the moment, what's happening is the whole world is fighting a proxy war. It's a, geo it's a war of geopolitics, it's a war of culture, it's a war of religion, it's a war of God knows what else. And that's being fought on the bodies of the women and children, the men of, uh, of uh, Gaza. Now, that's what's happening. So we are fixated, even we are falling into the trap. We are debating the narrow subject of uh, safe zones and humanitarian this and humanitarian that. We all agree there is no humanitarian solution uh, to this. And yet people are saying, no, these guys can't leave. Uh, you, uh, to neighboring countries. That's utter and total nonsense. It's a violation of international refugee law. Our friend from the, friends from the UN should know that, that not opening your borders is a violation of international law mm -hmm. in the same way that Israel might be committing uh, 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 international law there. I stood on the border in 1994 between Rwanda and uh, uh, Congo when a million people were fleeing the Rwanda, uh, Rwanda genocide. The border was wide open, and many millions of people were saved. They went back. People will go back, provided there is a peace in the, in the wider region. So I think we're so preoccupied with uh, this kind of uh, uh, historic positions we've got here. We are, we, are not, we are forgetting that the only way, if we are really humanitarian, if our hearts really bleeds for mm. the suffering people okay. of Gaza, number one duty is let them live, let them go, where they can live, and let us then remain to fight for peace another day. OK. Uh, Dr Hedy, I know I can see that you're itching to, to jump back in here. What do you make of that, all of that? Yeah. Do you think that this is just a proxy war? No, I don't think it's a proxy war. I think that you've had... Uh, I mean, of course, there are people that want to uh, pursue their own agendas. Of course, that's true. Um, but I think that the root of this problem, of course, is an occupation. Um, and uh, I would question tremendously the idea that people ought to expect that if Palestinians leave Gaza, that they're going to be allowed to go back when there's, quote-unquote, peace in the region. Mm -hmm. um, there have been Palestinian refugees uh, since 1948. No Palestinian refugee population has been allowed to return at any point 
in that time, you know, whether it was due to 48, whether it was due to 67, uh, yeah. and anything in between, all right? Okay. So, um, no, I think that there is a very genuine concern. I think the concern is, is very justifiable that if they do leave, they will not be able to go back. Mm. And, if we're, and again, I want to re-emphasize this point. Um, I appreciate the idea that we ought to be requesting Egypt to open that one border. There are seven land borders. I want to see the same sort of pressure being applied for each of those other land borders. And even in this conversation, I do not see that. Okay. Thank you. We'll have to leave it there. We've, we've run out of time, but we really do appreciate uh, all your time and input. Julia Tuma, Mukesh Kapila and H. A. Halia, thank you. This episode was produced by Shantanu Chatterjee, Veronica Pedrosa, Fintan Monaghan and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Haseeb Hashmi. The programme was edited by Anil Anadan, Zaina Butter and Joda Frias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch each and every episode. Thank you for listening and tune in on Monday for our next edition. We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.